Galatians 5, verse 1. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Father, we ask that you would help us as we study your word. Would you give us hearts to receive it, knowing that it is breathed out by you and inspired and profitable to us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I recently read a book that explained the process for modern-day conversion to Judaism. As certain people were considering becoming a Jew by religion, they had to go through a conversion process. After attending classes at a local synagogue and learning about the Jewish religion, they had to take the final steps in order to be received as a Jew. That process for the men would involve circumcision, and if the individual was already circumcised, it would require blood to be drawn from them enough to stain a cotton ball. After that, there would be water baptism. They'd have to, ent- have to enter the mikvah, which is a baptismal tank, and both men and women would be stripped of all clothing and brought into that tank and would have to be immersed three times in a ritual washing. And after they are immersed, they would have to answer a series of questions with the expected answer of yes. A sample of the questions are these. Will you endeavor to keep the Sabbath to the best of your ability? Will you keep and honor the feasts and festivals of Judaism? Will you strive to live by the teaching of the Torah? Once those ceremonies are complete and those questions have been answered, the rabbi will give approval to their conversion. I'm not sure how many of you are tempted to do that today. Some people are. Some Christians are. The book that I read was written by Christians who were considering that process. But I'm not sure how much that is a temptation to anyone in this room to go through that process. It could be there. I don't know if there are any. I did have at one point in my ministry after I preached somebody come up to me and engage in a lively dialogue to ask if I would be willing to put a monument of the Ten Commandments in the front of the church. 
I indicated I was not willing, at which point I received a tongue lashing for minimizing the law of God. Not to say the Ten Commandments are unimportant or irrelevant to believers, but my response was that we are under grace, not under law. The temptation that we face it may not be to be circumcised. It may not be to put a monument to the Ten Commandments in the front of your church or in the front of your house. But the temptation is always there to try to boast in our own righteousness and to attend to a religion of works, not one of grace. The Galatians were tempted for some reason, though they were Gentiles, to submit themselves to circumcision. And I think the thing that was tempting to them was that as they went through with that process, or if they went through that process, it would be something very attainable for them. It would be a mark, at least on the men, of, on their body that showed who they were, what they were, who they belonged to. It would be very easy just by putting that mark on their body to represent what they were about. They could say there, now I know by what I see and what I have done that I belong to God. They could think, God is pleased with me because I have cut off a piece of skin from my body. This can be transferred to us in different ways. Some people may think, God is pleased with me because I got vaccinated. Some people might think, God is pleased with me because I did not get vaccinated. Some people may be thinking that God is pleased with me because I am a card-carrying member of the right political party. Some people might think that they God is pleased with them because they're a card-carrying member of any association. It sounds trite and trivial, but we do put our stock too often in things that we can pull out a card and show that we are members of. Or something that represents us to other people. And as we do that, it becomes so tricky to separate our own righteousness that we can pat ourselves on the back for is a righteousness that comes only by faith in Jesus Christ. But God, in no uncertain terms, has made salvation so unequivocally his that he says in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works. And you know how it ends. So that no one may Boast. Those who are teaching the Galatians to circumcise themselves in order to be acceptable to God very much had boasting on their minds. In Galatians 4, verse 17, it says, They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out that you may make much of them. They wanted to boast, they wanted to receive the credit. For what they have done. Galatians chapter 6, verse 13. 
says, for even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. But Paul goes on to say, but far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Think of our society right now. We are so prone to boasting. We find reasons to boast over other people all the time. If you were to measure our society by our news outlets, you have one news outlet saying that one side is righteous because they do this, and another news outlet saying that they're righteous because they do that. And the two are the opposites. And we define ourselves by who we are not and what we do or what we have not done. We boast about these things. Our world is full of it, full of this boasting. Those who belong to the blue party boast because they belong to the blue party. Those who belong to the red party boast because they belong to the red party. And somebody eventually intervenes and says something as extravagant as Galatians 5 verse 6, which says, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. And it cuts through the mess of our world. Even if you are not tempted to be circumcised, you are tempted all the time by this world to try to boast in things other than Christ. And this text of Galatians helps to cut through that morass and help us to see that there's only one thing that we really are to boast in, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. The deficiency of the way of thinking of boasting is that we do not realize the seriousness of our sin. And when we begin to boast in ourselves, it just basically puts us out there to be exposed as a fraud because nobody ever adheres to the full set of principles that they say they adhere to. We fail all the time. Romans chapter 2, verse 3 says, Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Didn't you get some great satisfaction during all the mask mandates when certain governors put out the law about what they were supposed to do and then they violated their own law and were found without a mask? And you get kind of a satisfaction about it. And this is not to say anything about the mask mandates. You just get a sense that self-righteousness is always undermined by your sin. In any time... If we personalize this, you put yourself out there as such and such a kind of person. You are, your self-righteousness is undermined when you violate the very kind of person that you say that you are. Do you suppose, O oh man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, you will escape the judgment of God? Romans 2, verse 17 but if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, 
You then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, excuse me, dishonor God by breaking the law. The unrelenting pursuit of the book of Galatians is to undermine any confidence that we have in our own righteousness and to point us to the unique one-time event that has happened in Christ which gives us all the salvation that we could ever need. In Christ, God offers to us redemption, salvation, righteousness, freedom, inheritance, sonship, the Spirit. And we receive these things not by working hard, not by being self-righteous, not by being good enough, but by faith, by trusting in his promise and in the work of Jesus Christ. There are a multitude of commands in the book of Galatians, but we look at one, actually two this morning, in chapter 5, verse 1, that tells us to stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. The instruction is both positive and negative. It is telling you not to go back to that way of life that the world advocates where it puts hope in yourself. Don't go back. Don't put on that yoke of slavery. The positive side of the command is to stand firm in the freedom of Christ. After God brought the Israelites out of Egypt in Leviticus 26, 13, God says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, that you should not be their slaves. And I have broken the bars of your yoke and made you walk erect. The Lord freed the Israelites from Egypt. That's a picture for us of freeing us from the bondage of sin, slavery to the law. He's freed us, and just as much as God did not expect the Israelites to go back to Egypt, God does not go, expect us to go back to law-keeping as the means of our righteousness. And so this passage this morning will help us to know how to obey those commands, how to stand firm in the freedom that Christ has given, how to not submit to the yoke of slavery. We'll give you a couple of instructions in how to fulfill these commands. So in order to stand firm and not submit to the yoke of slavery, first, know one truth, that Christ set you free for freedom. This is an interesting way that Paul puts it for us. He says, for freedom, Christ has set us free. If somebody busts you out of jail and you find yourself no longer shackled and you don't, you're not behind bars anymore and you ask the person, why did you do that? And their answer is, I freed you so that you could be free. You might kind of smack your head and say, well, duh, of course. You freed me so that I wouldn't be in prison anymore. And that's exactly what Paul says Christ has done for us. For freedom... Christ has set you free. He set you free so that you would be free. It's not brain surgery. 
It's not rocket science. It's the very evident reason for why Christ has come. He set you free so that you would be free. Jesus Christ is the one who has done this. It's Christ who has done it. It is Christ who has set you free. It's Christ alone who has the capacity to redeem you from the burden of law-keeping as the measure of your success before God. He sets you free from that. In chapter 3, verse 10, it says, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Christ became a curse so that you wouldn't have to be cursed. And that's the fundamental freedom that Paul is referring to. Because when you submit yourself to any kind of law-keeping, you find yourself not a law-keeper, but a law-breaker. And if you're a law-breaker, then you're a cursed person. You are under the conviction and condemnation of that law. But Christ came to set you free from that curse. He set you free from law-keeping. And he sets you free from the condemnation of law-breaking. And so now, because he has set you free, he expects you to live in the freedom. That means not go back to the law-keeping that once defined you, or the self-righteousness that you once clung to, or the identification that promotes you before God as a mark on your body. That doesn't matter at all. Now it, it is freedom. It is freedom. This kind of freedom is important to understand because we live in a country that is marked the land of the free. And we certainly value the kind of freedom, the political freedom that we experience in our country, and we can be grateful for that. And yet the reality is that the majority of the people who live in the land of the free are slaves. Slaves to sin. Slaves to self-righteousness. Slaves to the law. This text about freedom applies equally to Christians in the United States as it does to Christians in Iran or North Korea or China or Saudi Arabia. This kind of freedom transcends political regimes, political boundaries. It is a freedom that is not won by policy changes, a strong military, and a good constitution. It is a liberty that no political regime can take from any Christian in this world. It is a freedom from the law. It is freedom from sin. It is freedom from condemnation. It is the liberty that you desperately need. Now, it's worth saying that when we talk about freedom that Christ has given us, it is not a freedom to just go out and do whatever you want now. 
You don't get to be a, a flower child of the 60s and just do whatever you want. That's not the kind of liberty that Christ gives us. It says in Romans chapter 6, verse 15, What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you, it, that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves to the one of who, whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. Or 1 Peter 2.16 instructs us, live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. This links freedom not to living for evil, but to living for God. And that's really the kind of freedom that Christ has given us. Finally, through Christ, after all the efforts of law-keeping that were unsuccessful, Christ brings a real life to you that allows you to actually live for God that is free and not in bondage. That's the kind of freedom that Christ brings. It's not a freedom to do whatever you want. It's a freedom to live by the Spirit, a freedom from the guilt of the law, living with the forgiveness of your sins, living with God as your Father, living with Christ as your Lord, no longer as a slave to sin or death or Satan, no longer living to obtain merit before God on account of your works. Christ has set you free for that freedom. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. So in order to stand firm, you need to know that principle, that Christ set you free for freedom. The next way that we find ourselves being helped to stand firm and not submitting to slavery is to heed three warnings. Heed three warnings. The middle part of this paragraph that Paul has for us is devoted to telling us about the consequences of accepting circumcision. The Galatians were really on the verge. They're on the brink. You get that impression as you read this book. They haven't quite gone over the edge into full-fledged law-keeping, but they're right there. The temptation is there to go ahead and get circumcised and embrace all of the law as the means of their status before God. They're on that cusp. And so Paul gives them these warnings about what it means if they accept circumcision. And so we need to hear these warnings, not necessarily because you are tempted to accept circumcision, but because circumcision represents the religion of human works of human achievement. And it is the antithesis to the free offer of grace that God gives us in Christ. And so we don't want to find our boast in our works. We want to find our boast in God's work for us in Christ. And so we need to heed these warnings. Warning number one is that if you are circumcised, then Christ will be of no benefit to you on the day of judgment. Paul says in verse 2, Look, I say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. 
if the Galatians go through that act of circumcision, then the result is that when they face judgment before God, Christ will be of no advantage to them. The reason that we kind of put this in the future is because it's a future tense verb. Christ will be of no advantage to you. It's looking towards that day of judgment that is to come. And if they go through with the act of circumcision and thereby embrace their own righteousness as the means of their standing before God, they will find one day that they come to stand before God with the only thing that they have to claim for themselves is circumcision and all the attendant law-keeping. Can you imagine, for those who know something about the fiery judgment of God, standing naked before God on the day of judgment with no Christ on your side. All you have is you. No Christ. If that doesn't send some tremors through your heart, you need to think deeply about the judgment of God and the work of Christ on your behalf. What a disaster not to have Christ there as your advocate, the one who clothes you with his righteousness. Christ, in him are all riches of wisdom and knowledge. In Christ is gentleness and compassion. In Christ is power and atonement. In Christ is resurrection and light and life and truth. And you have none of those advantages if you accept a religion of works, all you have is yourself. That's a scary thing. That means that all power, all life, all resurrection is left up for you to find within yourself. That's the first warning. Christ will be of no advantage to you if you accept a religion of works. Warning number two is that if you accept circumcision or a religion of works, then you need to do all of them. All of them. Verse three, I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. That's why circumcision is no, gives it puts you in a position where Christ is of no advantage to you because circumcision is kind of the doorway or the entry gate into a religion where you are subscribing to keep every last rule. You have to keep it all. Listen again to Romans chapter 2, verse 25 and 27. Through 27, it says, For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. To be circumcised and to break the law 
then is to effectively to become uncircumcised. But in that case, you carry on your body a mark that shows that you are to be other than what you are by your works. It's a little bit like the people who put the Jesus fish on their bumper sticker. No offense if you do this. But that carries an immediate expectation of the kind of driver you ought to be. And when the police officer pulls you over for doing 80 in a 40, all he has to say is, what's up with your bumper sticker? When you accept something like circumcision or some sort of marker that identifies your religion as a religion of works, it immediately shows you to be accountable for everything that that symbol represents. And circumcision for the Jew represented that they were under the law and were required to keep every last rule. And so as soon as they broke a law, their circumcision on their body betrayed the circumcision of their heart. It showed that they were a lawbreaker. And so if you accept circumcision, you're obligated to keep all of it. If you want that to identify you, it's almost as if Paul is saying, fine, go ahead and let that identify you, but realize what that really identifies by, about you, that you need to keep every last rule. You don't get the advantages of circumcision as a representation of belonging to the people of God without also keeping all the rules that God gave to his people. Warning number three. If you accept circumcision, you will be cut off from grace. He says in verse four, you are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law, you who have fallen away from grace. Two words stand out there, severed from Christ and fallen away. The word severed is used in Romans 7 to describe the ending of a relationship between husband and wife when the husband dies. The relationship is severed. The relationship doesn't exist for a married woman, it says in Romans 7.2, is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released, same word, from the law of marriage. In chapter 7, verse 6 of Romans, it uses it in a different way. It says, but now we are released, same word, from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. In Romans, Paul is making the argument that when you come to Christ, your relationship with the law is dead and gone, and you're no longer under the law, and now you belong to Christ. Paul is saying the opposite here in, Rome, in Galatians 5. For people who are looking at accepting law, they are attaching themselves to law and not to Christ, and so they have no relationship with Christ. It means that if you go with the law, you don't have a relationship with Christ. Falling away in the end of verse 4 is a word that's used in Acts 27 17 to describe the ship that Paul is on in the midst of a storm that it might run aground because it's gone, gone off course. 
It's this idea of running aground or veering off course. Falling away from grace. You're going off course from grace. You're being driven by this legalism that is steering you onto a road that is not a road of grace, but a road of works. If that's the case, then not only are you separated from Christ, but you also have no access to his grace. And if you have no access to his grace, then you're back in that predicament of relying entirely upon your own works. But don't you need grace every single day of your life? Don't you know you need his forgiveness every single day? You need his kindness, his compassion, his patience. In a word, you need his grace every day. And if you follow that temptation to try to stay on your own course of works, just know that you're pursuing a course that lacks any grace. And if it lacks any grace, then all that it possesses is righteous judgment. Because you are obligated to keep every law, and you haven't. One commentator says it this way, it is impossible to receive Christ, thereby acknowledging that you cannot save yourself, and then receive circumcision, thereby claiming that you can. They're incompatible and mutually exclusive. Heed those warnings so that you would stand firm in the freedom and not submit again to slavery. One last category for how to stand firm in the freedom that Christ has given us and not submit again to slavery is consider two reasons we don't pursue our own righteousness. Consider two reasons we don't pursue our own righteousness. He says in verse 5, and gives us the first reason is, for through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. The first reason we don't pursue our own righteousness is because we are waiting for the hope of righteousness. There will come a day when all people will stand before the Lord. This is a clear and unequivocal teaching of Scripture. And on that day, what is your hope? There was a trial recently, and again, for some reason, I keep, up, keep on bringing political instances, and I don't mean to make comment on that, but they just provide some illustrations. But in the recent trial, a young man was waiting for his verdict to come about whether he was guilty for a shooting that happened during the riots that happened. It's Kyle Rittenhouse. And if you saw that video, it was a powerful video. I don't know how you feel about the verdict, and that's not really the point that I mean to draw. But as he waits to find out whether he's going to be guilty of murder, he stands there as the jury reads the verdict. His whole future is before him. What's going to happen? Is he going to be innocent or found guilty? Can you imagine the weight on your shoulders if you stand in that situation? Are you going to jail or are you going to be set free? You're waiting for that verdict. You can barely stand it. It's so tense. Your heart's going to probably 
burst out of your chest as you wait to hear the verdict. For the believer, you have a trial that's coming. For the unbeliever, you have a trial that's coming. In this case, the judge always gets the verdict right. He will not make a mistake. He will not err in the verdict that he renders. But for the believer, when the judgment comes, your knees don't need to knock together. Your heart doesn't need to pound out of your chest in fear because you know that in Christ, the verdict that will be rendered to you on that day of judgment will be not guilty because Christ has paid it all. That young man was declared innocent. He didn't know what was going to happen, and he immediately broke down weeping. For us, you may break down weeping, you may break down rejoicing, but you don't need to be afraid of what the answer is going to be. We have a hope of righteousness. We are waiting for that. Well, but why, by what means are we waiting for it? Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27 and 28 says, And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. This is our hope. And we apply this hope by the Spirit. He says in Galatians 5, 5, it's through the Spirit. The Spirit has been given to you, and he's given you adoption of sonship so that you know that you can wait with a hope for that day of judgment. And you wait for it by faith. If Romans chapter 5, verse 1 says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We know that because of what Christ has done, we are reckoned or regarded currently by God as being innocent or as being righteous. But there will come a day when our faith turns to sight or our faith turns to hearing and we hear God speak to you those precious words that you are innocent. On what basis do you hope for that? Not on the basis of works but by the Spirit and by faith. And so don't submit again to a yoke of slavery because you know your whole future is taken care of entirely by Christ Jesus. The second reason is that external religiosity matters nothing for those in Christ. Galatians 5 verse 6 says, For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. For all the stock that was being put in circumcision amongst the Galatians, these false teachers were whipping up a frenzy of people feeling the need to get circumcised, and it was so big of an issue, Paul breaks it down in 5 verse 6 that at the end of the day, whether you're circumcised or uncircumcised doesn't matter one bit before God. What matters is faith working through love. 
not to say those things don't matter. They matter if you put your hope in them. Because if you put your hope in them, then that's what you're accountable for. I think the point more is God is not impressed with those things. You could go around boasting to other people, I'm circumcised. That'd be a weird thing to do. You could go around boasting to other people, I'm uncircumcised. That would be an equally weird thing to do. It doesn't count for anything before God. What do you want to be known for? Oh, we may not go around boasting about these religious externals. But in our hearts, we know that we want other people to know us for something. It could be something as trivial as I want to be known as the fan of my sports team. I want to be known for the career that I've had. I want to be known for the education that I have received. I want to be known because of this particular group or cause that I've championed my whole life. What do you want to be known for? the end of the day, the only thing that matters, Paul says, the only thing that counts for anything is faith. And we don't have to assume or guess what he's talking about. He's talking about faith in Jesus Christ. That's our whole life. It says, Christ, who is your life? Galatians 4.19 speaks about Christ being formed in you. Galatians chapter 2, verse 20 says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live, I live in the flesh by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. It's all about Christ. In this kind of faith, Paul now begins to define what kind of faith we have that is saving faith. And he adds this description of it, that is his faith, namely the kind of faith that works through love. This is not in any way indicating that Paul is reversing everything that he said about works. The only way that you are justified is by faith in Jesus Christ, but the kind of faith that you are to have is a faith that evidences itself in love. That is true faith. The ethical component is going to be developed with some attention to detail in the remaining part of Galatians. We need to remember we are saved by faith alone, and as it has often been said, the faith that saves, however, is never alone. Faith will produce fruit. What kind of fruit? Paul's going to talk about that. Fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is love. So if you want to stand in the freedom that Christ has given you, you need to remember that it is Christ who has set you free. You need to heed the warnings 
that if you depart from the law or depart if you depart to the law you're departing from Christ if you depart to the law you must keep all of it if you depart to the law then you have no access to grace in Christ you need to consider the reasons that we have for not going to the law it's because we're waiting for the hope of righteousness and because of external religiosity doesn't matter at all let's pray Heavenly Father, we thank you once again for our Lord Jesus Christ. We owe all to him. He is our life, our righteousness. We trust him. Father, again, I would ask that whatever self-righteousness that dwells in us would be driven far from us and help us to rely on Christ. And Lord, may our faith also evidence itself in love. Father, may we have a love like Christ had for us. Pray in Christ's name. Amen.